This podcast is darker than a black steer's took us on a moonless prairie night. Let's do a podcast about the Big Lebowski. Coen Brothers Movie Club, number seven. The Big Lebowski, coming right up. Not on the rock, man. I woke up this morning with the sundown shining in. This is not knob, this is bowling, there are rules. I found my mind in a brown paper bag. But then my rug, they really tied the room together. <laughs> I tripped on a cloud and fell eight miles high. I tore my mind on a jagged sky. I just dropped in to see what condition my condition was in. Yeah, yeah, oh yeah. I'll be there, man. My condition was in. There we go. Yeah. You're okay. You're um you sound okay, but we'll see if the internet quality fails us. Okay. Yeah, I haven't listened to our previous episode yet, so does it go wonky at times? No, just your we're recording this on on Google Meet and um and your video quality suddenly got really bad. Oh, okay. But your but the sound is fine and that's all that's all I mean. Yeah. Well, um, hey, thanks for listening to this podcast, whoever is listening to this. And we're going to talk about the Big Lebowski. Mm-hmm. Um, it's almost like a, as as the world is ending, there's nothing left to do except just talk about the Big Lebowski. It has lots of uh, things to talk about. That's true. So <laughs> what you were saying a moment ago was... There's 20 minutes there, after Bunny Lebowski comes back, mm-hmm. which is for all intents and purposes, the resolution of the whole plot in some ways. Yeah. There's still 20 minutes left in the movie. Um, so here's on this most recent watching of Big Lebowski, which for me was probably the 25th. I don't know. Lots of viewings. Mm-hmm. Um, it's longer than you remember. Yeah. The movie's fairly long. It's like, it's it's somehow longer than than you think it should be yeah yeah because because for that reason i think like you want the resolution to happen when bunny comes back and so bunny comes back the mystery solved but then it's like it's like all these codas oh but wait we have the nihilists oh but wait jesus comes back (laughs) to Right. <laughs> to yell yeah, him. I forget that the so in my mind, in my memory, that that last scene with the Jesus is like somewhere in the middle of the movie, but it's right at the end. Yeah. It's like, yeah. Um well not right at the end, 20 minutes because it leads wow. into the, the fight with the nihilist where um yeah. where uh Donnie dies. Yeah. So I would say that upon this viewing, I I didn't find this viewing of the Big Lebowski to be disappointing. I didn't come away from this saying, that's not quite as good as I remember, but I did come away thinking it's maybe a little longer than it needs to be. Uh, um, I, but I don't know what I would cut out. I mean, every little, every little part has its little morsel of delight in it. Yeah. And, and I think is kind of, I think it's necessary. You could make the argument that you could end the movie um, with Donnie's funeral mm-hmm. and then cut out the very last scene. But I think that last scene is necessary because you got to have um, 
got to have Sam Elliott or right. Sam Elliott. Sam, Sam Elliott. Elliott. Yeah, you got to have Sam Sam Elliott come back and bookend the whole thing with the narration. You know, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, um, that's true. But would it? But if you shuffled scenes around more, right? Mm-hmm. Like, what if they somehow uh, the scene with with Jesus yelling at them, then the nihilists, and then they go to um, uh, Lebowski's house and find out that Bunny comes back? Right. That's true. Although the scene with the nihilists would have to play out differently because what they tell them is that she already came back. Yeah, right. Yeah. One plot question. How, maybe the movie says this and I just missed it. How do the nihilists know to start the scam? Is it just presumably that one of them works at the Lebowski house and then notices that she's run off and it's like, oh, I've been not like, no, Carl, Carl Hungus hangs out with Bunny. Like they made that porn together and he's one of the nihilists. She leaves. For sure. And so it's just her leaving to go have a fun road trip gives him the idea. Oh, I know what we could do. Well, and I mean, he did he did all the porn stuff with her. So he he is in the Jackie Treehorn um, circle and Uh she owes money to Jackie Treehorn. Uh So he he probably has knowledge of how much money she owes, where Jackie Treehorn is, the fact that she left. Right, right, right. So he just sort of put it together. He just sort of came up. He he just sort of came up with the uh, a way to take advantage of her absence the same way that the Big Lebowski does. Yeah, yeah, I think so. That yeah. makes sense. That makes sense. Um, I I actually thought when I was watching it and I got interrupted from for some kind of like family emergency in the middle of watching it, but um, when I watched it, it was way. I, I I thought I was going to be not bored, but like, oh yeah, here's this. Oh yeah, here's this. And mm-hmm. just kind of have it play out in a um I've seen this a million times before sort of way. Right. And I was laughing at like all of the like all of the parts. Mm-hmm. It was I think this is a better movie than Fargo, honestly. Ooh. Yeah. That's interesting. On, I think uh, yeah. Go ahead. I think well, maybe the, the movie has more. <laughs> you said go ahead and then you kept talking. Yeah, I know. I'm sorry. <laughs> I was going to say what makes it a better movie, I think, is that, yes, it's longer. But I think the I think the pacing within the scenes might be better, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. Anyway, what, go ahead. What was your thought? I think it's a more richly painted tapestry than Fargo. Yeah. I think that it's more dense than Fargo in terms of, I mean, first of all, there's probably just a lot more dialogue than in Fargo. Mm-hmm. For sure. Um, the total number of words spoken is probably a lot higher. And so that kind of, it weaves a denser tapestry of language. And it also kind of weaves a denser tapestry of sight gags. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Yeah. There's, and it, it still follows the pattern of, of, what their like violent stuff is where it's like very slow and and like kind of a still shot and then all of a sudden like something's charging at you from the screen mm-hmm. and i think maybe they're playing with the idea that people have seen fargo and fargo was super popular 
-hmm. So they, I think they were playing with the idea of like, let's, let's make this movie where people think we're going to do all this like crazy violent stuff, like the wood chipper thing, but actually have it be Maude Lebowski hanging from a thing. And she's like splattering paint all over the place. Mm -hmm. Cause yeah. that's, that scene is shot like a horror movie. Yeah. <laughs> and the and, soundtrack over it, that weird sort of breathy song. <laughs> yeah. That's a weird yeah. song. Like, like who, who, what I want to know is presumably that is a piece of music that somebody recorded and released on an album. Who's yeah. the guy who's like, I'm having some people over tonight. You know what I want to put on? I want to put on this song that basically sounds like a woman sort of breathing to a, to a, to a, to a melody. I mean, um, I've shown you that I've, I've shown you that uh, that guy that I know that I played in a in a band with. He mm -hmm. he used to play like improv saxophone, and now all of his stuff is improv bird calls. Oh man, yeah. Like he's got like a table full of full of like different tweeters, and he's, he's got like, like a soundboard of bird calls. Yeah. Oh man. Well, um, I I agree with what you said about it. This movie is in some ways, it's almost like they, it's almost like they were kind of a little bit fucking with the, the world based on what people expected from the people who made Fargo. Mm -hmm. And so this is my theory and I can't back this up. I have no evidence for this theory, but I think that the Coen brothers, when they made Fargo, thought they were making more of a comedy than anybody took it to be. Oh, I think that I think that there's, as I recall, and again, I, I mean, I was like, how old was I when Fargo came out? 16, 15? No, less than that. 13. Um, as I recall, it was it was greeted as not a black, not a comedy, but just like a straight up drama. But I think they meant it to be very comedic. And mm -hmm. because I think most people didn't get that, like most people took it as like a prestige drama. I almost feel like they wanted their next movie to just kind of give a middle finger to people who thought that these guys make prestige dramas. They're like, mm, yeah. All right, here, we're going to make another movie, which is in some ways similar to Fargo in the sense that it's like a plot that goes awry, a kidnapping yep. that goes awry. Mm -hmm. But they're just going to fucking just That's, have fun with that it. That is true. You, it, it is another uh, another kidnapping. I didn't think about that. Yeah. Yeah, or what they think is a kidnapping. Yeah, it's actually it's another thing that is not actually a kidnapping in the conventional sense. <laughs> True. Yeah. Um, there's no police officer character in this one, but I guess the well, thing is the dude and Walter. Well, there are police officers in it. Yeah. But yeah. But the there's not a police officer as a central character. No, no. So, Those the guys who are police officers, I absolutely love all of those actors like the um the two guys that come to his house mm -hmm. i i don't know that actor's name the um the black guy who's the cop in that scene. yeah what's he what else is he in i i don't know should we do some internet research I while we're we probably have to because okay. because i was recognizing him too i was like wait a minute I, I i don't think i ever really processed that the 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 black cop is like a big time character actor that's in tons of stuff. I never really noticed it was that guy until this viewing. Yeah. Um actually there's four there's four main cops. So there's 
there's the two guys that come to visit him. Yep. Um, to get the police report, the guy who is in the impound lot with his mm -hmm. car. I mm -hmm. love that. I absolutely love that dude. <laughs> He's so funny. His laugh, like the way, yeah. he, just all of it. Like, oh yeah, we're working around the round the clock or whatever he says. Richard Grant. Richard is Grant, the, the Afri the black cop. Uh, what is he in? He's in. Okay, so he was on this show on Netflix called Mr. Iglesias that I saw a couple episodes of. I definitely didn't see that. So for me, it was something uh, not Richard uh, E. Grant. Richard no, not e. Richard Grant. E. Grant. The E is probably in it precisely because of this guy. Oh, oh, he was. Holy shit, he's Hostetler. Oh, yeah, he is. And he's in Rocky Five, which I've seen that movie a million times. He plays he plays like kind of like a Don King character. Okay. He's not Don King, but that's who you want. That's who he's intended to be. Yes. That's right. He's Hostetler. That's why we know him so well. Yeah, that's definitely what I was recognizing him from. Yeah. Yeah. Dang. Yep. Um. Oh, and he was in Smallville for a bit. I used there to. Was... I watched all of that Smallville. And then the white cop. The white <laughs> cop is this guy who was in this show that I watched a lot of back when it was on in the '90s called The Adventures of Briscoe County Jr. Oh yeah, uh, yeah. With um um, what's his name? Um, um yeah, Evil the... Dead guy. Um, you know, Sam Raimi's pal. Yeah, that guy. Why can't we remember his name? <laughs> I don't know. But he was he was the sort of like nebbishy scientist sidekick to Bruce Campbell's character in that. Bruce Campbell. Bruce yeah. Campbell. Yeah. 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 And it's um, funny because yeah, he kind of he kind of um yeah. I, I, I had some point I was gonna make, but I forgot what it was. Yeah, man. Those two were great. The impound lot cop is great. And the the sheriff of um oh, Malibu. of Malibu mm -hmm. throw, just throwing the cup at the dude's head. Yeah. Oh, so good. Yep. Yep. It, the thing I think there I think the thing I I think that makes this maybe a little bit better, this movie a little bit better than Fargo is that like you said it has it there's more dialogue. I think it covers more themes. Like if you wanted to, you could you could like dissect all of Walter's talk about about like um Lenin mm -hmm. and and the state of Israel mm -hmm. and all of that stuff and what does that mean that he's a you know that he's a convert to to Judaism and right. is, are they making some sort of like point because it's the Iraq war and like yeah. all of that stuff um not not to mention like you could also say the dude being this like down on his luck guy against all of these like the other Lebowski who's like this capitalist dude. And what does that mean? You know, like mm -hmm. if, if you wanted to, you could juggle these, these themes around a ton and come up with like, Oh, this is what really the Coen brothers were saying. Right. right. And I think the Coen brothers are masters in their comedies of 
doing kind of pastiche of that. Like, I don't think that they thought out a sort of unified philosophical theory to Walter in this. No. But they definitely put in a lot of intriguing threads that you could make something of if you wanted. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think if if somebody came away with this thinking, the Coen brothers have a point, I would, right. I would say that is not true. They do not right. have a point. I think, it, I think that there is something to that unified theory of how one of the things that they like to do in a lot of their films is sort of make it about the embarrassed, powerless American left. Yeah. Because no, that's true. Yeah. Because, uh, you know, the, you know, the dude is one of the original authors of the Port Huron statement. The original, <laughs> what? The original version, not the compromised second draft. What's but now the he's Port just Huron like statement? Unemployed, uh, you know, now he's just an unemployed, aging hippie. But, but okay, but he made that up. He also said he was a roadie for Metallica. There, there are a bunch of assholes. Yeah, I suppose. It, then he, but it is consistent that it, that would be consistent with what he says to Brant when he's when Brant goes, "Oh, he didn't go to college." He's like, "No, I did. I just spent most of my time occupying a academic administrative buildings and stuff." <laughs> well, which would be consistent with someone who wrote the you know first draft yeah. of the Port Huron statement. What What's the Port Huron statement? The Port Huron statement was a sort of a manifesto written by left wing college students in the early 1960s, which was sort of a manifesto of the kind of the 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 found one of the foundational documents of the so-called new left. That is um, a left wing movement that is culturally and aesthetically left wing, but no longer but not Marxist or not sort of Soviet aligned, mm. but rather you would sort of think of it as the the sort of beginnings of but you know then again it was anti-imperialist and that sort of thing i mean a lot of the port huron people did come out and become vietnam war anti-vietnam war activists early on but they weren't trying to do um they weren't trying to like organize the working class mm -hmm. you know what i mean it was a left wing it was a left movement that was what wasn't so much material but as more like cultural okay okay that's yeah. that would be my quick so yeah i guess that that changes you that if you believe that the dude right. is telling the truth yeah then that changes that changes your perspective on him completely right and he could be it could go one way or the other he could have been a, a roadie for metallica yep that's like, true i don't know sure um other things that i noticed for the first time on this viewing that i'd never noticed before which is walter's ex-wife's dog he says, "I think it's a Pomeranian." It is that not. dog is not a Pomeranian. It's like no. a Yorkshire Terrier. It's like a miniature Yorkie or something like that. I noticed that on this viewing too. I, I know. I, I always assumed, he, yeah, it's a Pomeranian, but that is not. Yeah, that's it's not a Pomeranian. <laughs> and also about Walter, what I just what I just saw is that he has his wedding ring on the chain that he has his dog tags from uh, Vietnam. Interesting. <laughs> I didn't notice that either. Yeah, he's got his, because, you know, the whole, like, he converted to Judaism for Cynthia, his ex-wife. Yep. Man, I also noticed, another thing that I noticed on this viewing was in the scenes where the dude and Walter are outside and there's very low light, it might as well be a black and white shot except for the yellow frame, the yellow lenses of Walter's glasses. Oh, yeah. Yeah, in, they, they the, in the car. So like the yellow flame, like the yellow lenses really pop out and that's like the only color you can see. 
Yeah, when they're in the car and and Credence is playing, that yep. that's the first time we hear Credence in the movie. And when they're on the street after he throws out the dirty undies and they're, you know. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> we threw out a ringer for a ringer. Yeah. Man, I was just I was I was just watching this movie and like quoting the lines like like beat for beat as yep. as they were happening. It's it's such a quotable movie. I don't know of I don't know. It, it, has any movie reached reached um, that this level in the past five years of like, oh, I gotta quote this movie? I don't think so. I don't. I can't. I can't think of another movie that has such a cult status as this. I don't know. Like, there's, it's, there's, there's, it's, it's the ultimate cult classic because it really didn't make a lot of money in the theater, but then on yeah. home video, everybody saw it. Yeah, and they saw it again and again. Yeah, and there's something about the way that they, these lines, the way they're written and the beats and like the fact that you can just kind of use them completely out of context and immediately yep. know what they're talking about. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I feel like there's certain directors that, writers and directors that do that, like the original Batman had lines like that, mm. the Tim Burton Batman. Uh-huh. Um, uh, um, what's his name? Wes Anderson has has some lines like that too, in, yep. especially in Royal Tenenbaums. I'm thinking, right. um, and and in other movies like What the Cuss, like from from uh, Fantastic oh, Mr. Fox. Yes, yes, yes. Just these little things that you can drop and instantly, like you know, you what? know the movie right away. Yep, yep, that's right. And proud we are of all of them. Like. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I even so in my dissertation, I even inserted a little vague Lebowski reference. I, um, I inserted the phrase "not the preferred nomenclature." <laughs> and the other thing, I was I I remembered this from previous watches, but the thing about Walter is Walter is frequently right. Oh, yeah, he's right about everything. Yeah, every prediction he makes turns out to be true. Yeah, yeah, he's wrong about the Pomeranian. But That's he's true. totally he, he's totally right about he's right Bunny. about it. You know, not she's not actually kidnapped. It's not actually her toe. Yeah. By the way, here's something Emily noticed that I didn't notice. Do you know whose toe it is? It's the the nihilist girlfriend. Do you know who plays her? No. It's Amy Mann. <laughs> <laughs> Amy Mann. That's Amy just Mann. That one, just for that one little yep. bit. Yep. Amy Mann plays. Nihilist woman, Franz's girlfriend, uh, and and they they get flea in the movie. Just yep. yeah, and I was clicking on people in the cast. I clicked on Tara Reid, fully yeah. expecting to see that Tara Reid. Oh, nothing. She's not done anything. No, Tara Reid is in movies all the time. Her IMDb oh. is like packed with B movies. Huh? She is working in B movies. Like she has. Currently, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve films in pre or post production. And she has three things listed to come out in 2020. And she had, you know, five things in 2019, four, five things in 2018. So, yeah, Tara Reid is working a lot as like a B movie actress. Not to be confused with Tara Reid. Oh, gosh. <laughs> <laughs> Who is the Joe Biden. I, um, I mean, it's not funny. This is the, I'm laughing. Not. I'm not laughing at what he did. No. I'm laughing at the 
there's different names there. Yeah, it, it's not funny. It is. It's not funny. But when I first read about these allegations, I did have a little chuckle to myself at how her name is the same as, as you know, so really it's funny about to read the B movie actress. Yeah. Yeah. Um, what was she? What did she kind of? I, I want to look at her. Um, she was big in so she, she was known for American Pie. Ah, uh, yeah. American okay. Pie is how she kind of got famous. Yeah, that um, makes sense. And that was just after the Big Lebowski. I want to say, yeah, it was the year after the Big Lebowski. I had I had the feeling that she was no. The thing is, uh, she was kind of popular before then. Oh, she was in Days of Our Lives. It looks like. Yeah, only for five episodes, though. Mm, okay. Uh, and Saved by the Bell, the new class. Mm -hmm. No, and I mean, one episode. That wouldn't have been it. Yeah. She was also in Cruel Intentions. But that was after. Yeah. I got the sense that in The Big Lebowski, she was already kind of famous, but I guess not. No, I don't think so. I think that was her first sort of major, major thing. Yeah, yeah. Tara Reid was in it, like, you know... Um, you know the movie uh, Marriage Story? And yeah. How uh, Scarlett Johansson's character is somebody who was like, the, the implication is that in the early 2000s or whatever, she was briefly in a lot of like raunchy teen movies. Yeah. And I sort of read her characters like, oh, okay. So she's sort of like a Tara Reid. Yeah. Start, you know, she, she had sort of a Tara Reid career trajectory, but then instead switched it up. Mm -hmm. uh, it's like Tara Reid is what that character would have become if she hadn't married Adam Driver's character or something like that. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. The, the other thing that I noticed about this movie a lot this time, maybe because this is the first time I've ever watched it on Blu-ray. Mm -hmm. um, the, if you take this movie and compare it to Miller's crossing or no country for old men, um, the color palette is like, it's just, it, I, I remember watching No Country for Old Men and being really surprised because I had put in my brain that Coen Brothers movies were like more uh, colors popped more and weren't didn't have that blue tint all over everything like No Country yeah. does. Yeah. Um, and I guess they returned to that with like the Ballad of Buster Scruggs. And uh -huh. Um, uh -huh. um, I can't remember what movie comes after this in their lineup. Do you? Do you remember? Uh, I think it's no credit. It's um, Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I would say that's something I was also kind of thinking of is, and I, I'm not sure if I'm agreeing with what you just said or disagreeing with what you just said, but I was struck that the Big Lebowski's color palette, to me, was basically just kind of run-of-the-mill 90s movie color palette. Like, mm. there didn't seem to be too much specific care given to color palette the way that there certainly is in like Miller's Crossing and mm -hmm. Fargo like the look of Big Lebowski is just a little bit more basic movie from 1998 yeah I, I think that's true I think maybe that's what maybe that's what gives it kind of a, a kind of an indie movie quality because mm -hmm. I was thinking that this felt indie movie just like Fargo felt like an indie movie when I was watching right. Yeah. And maybe it's that. Maybe it's it's um, just that just that specific thing. Like, yeah, let's care to to the color palette 
darkness. Is this a um uh what's his name? The the uh cinematographer. Is it Who Roger Deakins? Yeah, isn't it Roger Deakins on this? I don't know. Let's find out. Uh let's see, let's see. Yep. Old Deacons. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I mean, it's it's not a bad looking movie, but it's not a movie where it's not a movie where the cinematography is front and center the way it is in some of their other movies. Yeah. Yeah. By the way, a companion podcast series to this could be all of Roger Deakins' movies, yeah. and that would be fun. Yeah, that would be fun. After this, he goes on same year. He makes the siege. Oh man! And then in 1999, uh, Hurricane. Then 2000, Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? 2001, A Beautiful Mind. Um, the Man Who Wasn't There. House of Sand and Fog. Intolerable Cruelty. Levity. Lady Killers. Oh. The Village. Jarhead. Wow! It's, it's just like he's in. Not. Not every one of these movies is like, oh yeah, I really want to watch that, but pretty, yeah. pretty impressive for sure. Yeah. Um, um. Oh shit! What was I going to say? I forgot. It's gone. No, that's right. Yeah. No, Roger Deakins was great. Um. He take here. Here's a here's a thought experiment. Take take the opposing view of this movie. Um. And what, what I mean by that is, is there's lots of, I get the sense that this is a movie for um, dudes who want to prove, like, who want to prove their movie knowledge-ness. Mm. And um, I, I, I think that they're, because similar to, like, you might like Rick and Morty, but then there's Rick and Morty fans. Okay. You know what I mean? Yeah. And so there's like a certain type of, there's a certain type of person who likes this movie uh -huh. that then turns off people who are just like, I'm just trying to watch a movie. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Right. No, um, for sure. For and sure. I think, and I think there's something like kind of male and toxic about, Certain fans of the Big Lebowski. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Um. Yeah, there, there, it definitely. I think the the cult fandom of it does slip into toxic. But why? Like, what? Hmm. I, I, yeah, I don't know because it, I probably the same thing couldn't be said about about Fargo. I think it's. I think it's that people latch on to the dude in a in a way that's like intellectual frat um i'm gonna like smoke pot and quote these philosophers but i'm not really 100 percent sure what they mean and i'm gonna go through life with this kind of like take it easy bro you know yeah. sort of because i mean they don't make bootleg stickers of other characters from Coen Brothers movies, right? Like, no. the Big Lebowski has, like, you know, people saying, like, the dude abides and it's kind of meant in a... I don't think it's meant in the spirit of the movie. <laughs> no. Yeah. 
we're not supposed to a hundred percent be on his side. Like he's a he's an enjoyable character, but he's not in the right for a lot. Right. Of stuff. Exactly. That's true. That's a good point. Yeah, it's over over identification with the dude himself. I guess that makes sense. Yeah. I was looking for Roger Ebert's review of this, and I can't. All I could find was, so Roger Ebert, I think, re-reviewed it. So Roger Ebert wrote two reviews. Okay. He gave it three stars in 98, but then he gave it four stars in 2010. Oh. That must be, okay, that's not what I'm thinking of. There's, so yeah, three stars is still a good review for him. There was some some I know that some critics, and I can't think who, have famously reversed their opinion of this movie. Like they famously gave it a horrible review when it came out and then later revised their opinion. And huh. so and that's why I think that there's something to this idea that um people who saw Fargo and thought, like, okay, these guys are the new. I don't know, Martin Scorsese, or these guys are the new, um, I don't know, like mm -hmm. makers of prestige dramas were just so turned off by what they thought was nothing but juvenile humor. But it's not just juvenile humor. That's the thing. It's, it's, mm -hmm. it's stupid in an extremely smart way. The, hum the humor is dumb in a clever and, and very intelligent way. Right? Right. So there, and that's probably why people watch it again. Yeah. Because I could see on first viewing, you you look at this and you go, oh yeah, it's just like, this guy's a doofus and he smokes pot and listens to Bob Dylan, right? I like those things. This is a funny comedy. But yeah, I think there's there's definitely more to it than that. The dialogue is so quippy and so smart. Mm -hmm. Um. Yeah. Also, I remember I resisted seeing this movie when it first came out because I got it confused with Kingpin. Me too. I think <laughs> because they, I don't think they know how to. I don't think they knew how to market it. I remember no. clearly the the TV commercials that were on for this movie, and the TV commercials I know prominently featured the part where the Jesus and, and Liam are cleaning their bowling balls in that yeah. funny, like masturbatory motion. <laughs> like that was heavily featured in the TV commercials. And so that gave you this impression that it was going to be like a Farrelly brothers movie. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so I thought, Oh man, that looks terrible. Uh, but then I think my dad saw it first and he's like, no, 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 it's really good. We got to watch it. And then from then on, it was like, I was in love with it. Yeah, I I think it must have been one of my brother's friends because um, I was, I guess it came out in 98, so I was in college then too, but it must have been one of his friends who was like, no, you got to see this movie. Like, And his friend was like, you know, the movie, your brother's movie friend nerd. Yeah, you know? uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. Yeah. like, oh, okay, I should, I should see that. Yeah. Um, yeah, but I distinctly remember getting it confused with Kingpin. And I was just like, I don't know. I don't know that I'm in the mood to watch to watch something like that. Yeah. You know, I uh one one thing I came away from on this viewing, um, and I think that this is the first time I've ever watched the Big Lebowski 
so quickly on the heels of watching Fargo, I came away thinking, man, uh, Steve Buscemi is a really good actor because, because uh, like even just the way he carries himself and just the sort of vibe and the air he gives off in this is so different from Fargo. Yeah. um, That I was like, man, because in Fargo, as soon as that character enters the frame, you're just immediately skeeved out by him. He's giving off a horrible negative vibe and you think he's terrible. But in this movie, anytime Donnie enters the frame, it's like a little like bunny rabbit just kind of shows up. He's so, he's like the purest representation of like, just like a good natured dude. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yep. yep. Yeah. And it, I mean, that's the other, uh, the other thing about this movie is that, I didn't know who Raymond Chandler was when I first saw this movie. Uh-huh. And then I read some, I think I actually read, I think I put the two things together separately. Like, I don't think anybody told me I was reading a Raymond Chandler book. And then I th- rethought about the big Lebowski and I was like, Oh, this is a Raymond Chandler book. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and that's what it is. Like the dude is just a different, um, just a different film noir type character. So I guess my point being, I think what makes this movie so good is that um, all the characters that surround the dude, right? Like the dude has to be kind of um, one note in a way. Is this right? I don't know if this is right. The dude has to be kind of one note in a way because all of the other characters surrounding him are just these like ridiculous over the top people. Right. He's very over the top himself, but everyone's even more so. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Yeah. 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 Um, I, Julia I, Moore is so good in this. Like she's obviously having a lot of fun in that role. Um, and I forgot, you know, David Thewlis as Knox Harrington. Yeah. <laughs> just love that. And he's such a particular little character. That's uh, the other thing about the Coen Brothers movies is like a character that's in a movie for just two minutes is going to leave a huge impression. Um, and David Thewlis is definitely that as Knox Harrington. I, I forgot. I mean, I, I know that he's in the movie, but I had forgotten until he came on the screen. And I was yep. like, oh, yeah, there's <laughs> I think most people know him as Lupin from Harry Potter. Yep. yep. And um and he was so good as the character that he played in the series Fargo. Yes. So good. Yeah, that VM Varga. Oh yeah. Yeah, that was his name. Yeah. Um I'm trying to think I don't know else. what Yeah, what I don't know. There's so much. What, I mean, there's so many characters and and so many little <laughs> incidents. I mean, the part the line that slays me is when they show up to Arthur Digby Sellers' home <laughs> and Walter asks, does he still write? And his wife goes, goes oh no, he has health problems. <laughs> As he's sitting Very there in lung. the iron lung. Oh, God. <laughs> oh no, he has health problems. <laughs> and the kid the kid who plays Larry doesn't even utter one word. I kind of forgot no, that he just sits there in anything. silence, doesn't say anything. Oh man! Oh, God and the guy, yeah, the guy that runs out of his house. Oh yes, boxer shorts, yes. long hair. Oh man, so good. Ugh. Brent, I mean, a great performance by Philip Seymour Hoffman as Brant. Oh Brent. yes, the awkward laugh when Bunny Lebowski offers to suck his cock for a thousand dollars. 
<laughs> that look on his face. So good. Oh, man, it's a shame he wasn't in more Coen Brothers movies. The move, the move that he does that stands out for me is when he hands dude the the ransom letter when they're in the scene with the fireplace. Mm -hmm. He hands him the ransom letter and then he stands sort of at attention. Uh -huh. I don't know why it's a lot so of physical comedy. It's so it's so memorable. It's like it it says all you need to know about that guy. Yep. Um. The, on this viewing, I noticed that I think the only music that is non-diegetic, that's not happening in the scene, is uh -huh. um, is the Tumbling Tumbleweed song at the very beginning. Oh, I see not, what you mean. It's not Everything playing. else is like somebody listening to, um, somebody listening to a, a radio or something. Yeah, right. Um, even the what condition my condition was in like the the musical the dream numbers. sequence yeah that's him listening to it on his on his walkman right so. yeah man it's it, it does it is sort of a testament to how much sway they had in terms of financing that they could they could get the budget to do these crazy dream sequences in a movie like this i can imagine some producers being like what no, there's no way that you can get, you can put this elaborate dance number with all of these costumes. I mean, the the costumes like the the bowling pin uh, dancers and and everything, like so many producers would balk at that. They'd be like, "No, you can't do that." So, so it, it, that, yeah, right, exactly. And the the other thing that I was thinking about. So, have you heard how? Um, maybe we mentioned this in in our Raising Arizona podcast two years ago or whatever, but. Raising Arizona, there was a lot of like Roadrunner versus Wiley e. Coyote notes, mm -hmm. right? Like yep, uh, yep, yep, Nicholas yep. Cage, Wiley e. Coyote. Wiley e. Coyote. Yep. Yeah, the other guys, the Roadrunner. So there's a lot of Bugs Bunny type notes in this. Do you ever see the those the Bugs Bunny in the in the opera with Daffy Duck or all Good that point. stuff? Yep. Yeah. Um, yep. Because. Yeah, it's it, it's very similar. Those two yep. things are very similar. Right. Oh, also, what I here's a question: um, Is the the like scene that the landlord is performing his like little dance routine thing? Right. Is that the same uh, performance that John Cusack's puppets are doing at the beginning of um, of being John Malkovich? Hmm. Because I think it's a very, I think, I don't think it's like an original thing. I think they're doing something, right? Because um, I think that John Cusack's um, puppets are doing Abelard and Heloise. Okay. Who were like, they were, um, it's a, it's a, it's a story that goes back to the medieval period when there was, there was a monk and a nun that fell in love with each other. But of course, you know, because they're a monk and a nun, they can't be in love with each other. And I think they both end up dead. So it's like a, so, so it could be. I don't know. The, the music, I think, seems similar in my memory. I haven't seen Being John Malkovich in a long time. Yeah. I I just remember there was similar movements. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm trying to see if we know what that dance is. Like, I'm looking on the internet, but I can't find it. Um, uh, the Dance Modern. That's what it's called. Mm -hmm. A Dance Modern. 
Modern. Uh, John Malkovich. Let's see if something comes up. Ants of Despair is what he does. Okay. Yeah, it doesn't look like it's the same thing. Certainly a similar kind of emotional vibe being con conveyed between the two, though. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. It, have you, you've heard of this podcast called the Star Wars Minute? Have you heard of that? No, I don't think so. They take every Star Wars movie and each episode of the podcast dissects one minute of of oh, one movie so they have hundreds and hundreds of episodes that is some really really in-depth shit right there <laughs> i feel like you could do a lebowski minute <sighs> yeah you probably could do a lebowski minute yeah man well what do they do with the fucking rise of skywalker Ooh. yeah ugh, i don't know man i have no desire to rewatch that movie no i don't have any desire to see it ever again it's really sad i mean it's like this, you know, I still, well, this is not a Star Wars podcast, but it's just amazing how disappointed I was that by that. Oh, well. Oh, well. What are you going to yeah. do? You got to move yeah. on. Can't, yeah. can't remain, uh, uh, can't remain in, in, in mourning over Star Wars. Um, well, <clears throat> go ahead. Let's close. How about we close on what is your, what's the favorite quote from, from this movie? Um. What are, or at least what are the top contenders? Yeah. Let's see. Um, obviously, you're not a golfer. Yeah. That that's a good, good one. Doesn't look like I'm married. Yeah. Um, um. <laughs> I'm the walrus. I like. Oh, man. <laughs> <laughs> I'm the dude. That's what you call me or El Deuterine. I've said, if you're not into the whole brevity thing, I have said that many times in my life for unrelated things. I, I mean, the part that always gets me is in the, uh, in the last fight with the nihilists, the tall one with the long blonde <laughs> ponytail is just going, I fuck you. I fuck you. <laughs> I fucks you. Does, doesn't he say I fucks you up? Is that what he says or no? I think they, they're saying that for a minute and then he switches to just oh, <laughs> fuck you. <laughs> I, yeah, maybe uh, yeah, related it's when uh, his girlfriend lost her toe. It's not fair. Yeah. Because who's the nihilist around here? Oh, man. It's so and good. All this stuff Walter's saying about Vietnam for no reason. Man in the black pajamas. Worthy fucking adversary. <laughs> worthy fucking adversary. That's true. Uh... <laughs> I don't. I don't know how to even. I don't know how to pick a, a number one. Yeah, a lot of ins, a lot of outs, a lot of what have you. So. A lot of what have I've. I, yeah. yeah. Yep. You're in, you're entering a world of pain, Smokey. Oh, this, man. Is, this isn't nom. This is bowling. This is, there's rules. So weird. Uh, yeah, I don't know if they they just have this uncanny ability to know what line of dialogue is just going to land in yeah. a funny way. <clears throat> yeah somehow and they, they can just they they can just they they can make a line of dialogue that is not a joke it has no punchline it has no setup punchline but just they they know how to make a single line into a joke all by itself like little self-contained morsels of humor somehow yeah. i don't know how they do it yeah 
Yeah. Well, all well, right. Say, yeah, it's still top tier. Top tier Cohen's for me. It's still dude the rug. This, I don't know that any. This is the, I. You know, throughout my life, this has been my favorite movie, and then my number two movie. I think it's back to being my favorite movie. This is so good. Yeah. Like of anything, Cohen Brothers or any other movie. Yeah. Yep. Definitely. It's just so good. So good. All right. So well. Next time is uh oh, oh brother, brother where art thou? That's a good one. It is a good one. That's a really good one. And yeah. that's an, that's another one where I feel like <clears throat> well, we can save this for some of when we talk about it, but Oh Brother Where Art Thou was I think the first movie I saw where I felt like I was really paying attention to the cinematography. Mm -hmm. I remember I saw it in the theater and I remember it was like for the first time I was really appreciating how they were trying to create a, a sort of cohesive color palette and a cohesive look to it. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, no, I'm, I'm looking forward to, to that one. Yeah. Yep. All right. All right. Then. Well, that's that. That's that <laughs> mattress man. That's that mattress man. Yep. Do you know that quote? No. Punch drunk love. Oh, I've only seen that movie one time. Oof, that's speaking a of Philip Seymour Hoffman. Yeah, that's good. Yeah. All right. Okay. All right. Till next time. All right. Stay by your apparatus. That's right. Bye bye. Bye. Well, that about does her. Wraps are all up. <laughs>